Hi friends. This week I'm sitting down with Ed Lattimore. He's an ex-professional boxer who's also a physicist. It's not the most typical combination of characteristics that you're going to find. He's a very interesting guy. Ed and me spoke an awful lot about sobriety, alcohol's indoctrination into modern society and how it negatively affects a lot of people's lives without them really even noticing it. We also move on to his strategies for being incredibly successful on Twitter, which will be very useful to those of you that are looking to grow your social media followings as we move into the new year. Other than that, I just found him an incredibly charming and very likable guy. He's obviously got a big message that he wants to get across and... It's nice to hear someone who's also singing from the same hymn sheet of sobriety as myself. As always, please share the episode with a friend if you think that they would enjoy it. And I wanted to give a special thank you to everyone that helped share the episode for Relationships 103. So we landed in the top 40 worldwide on the Apple podcast chart, which is ridiculous. So thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. Here is Mr. Ed Lattimore. Ed Lattimore, how are you today, sir? I'm fantastic, man. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So, an ex-professional boxer who's also a physicist. That's not a, that's not a combination that you hear every day. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, these things just kind of happen. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't plan. I wish I could look back like, and go, oh, man, six years ago, this was the plan. But no, it really, it really just kind of grew and developed as a result of me taking and putting just one foot in front of the other i didn't really know exactly where i was going but i knew where i was but i was leaving if that makes sense yeah i totally understand so i mean you've got a you've got a super interesting story as you say the those two interests don't often mix so would you be able to give the listeners some background to yourself and, and tell us your story how you went from wherever you came from to where you are now oh yeah no problem so so I'll give you the the abridged version, and by abridged I mean the version that starts roughly around age twenty seven, twenty six, twenty seven. I was I was a pretty good amateur boxer, and as as I started inching closer, I was like, okay, I need to make sure I got something else to fall back on because I started to really see, you know, the higher you get and the closer you go to being professional, you get to see kind of what the professional ranks are like business and athletics wise plus you know plus i was fortunate in the position i was in and that i was i was getting sponsored and play, paid pretty well but by some pretty um powerful people so i got to see that and i said all right i need i need a backup and i kind of put that on the back burner for a little bit and try i moved i got cut from the program and i moved back from where i moved back to where i lived i lived in los angeles in the united states and then i moved back to Pittsburgh and I was working for a while and, and going out partying every night and just really being a fool and kind of ignoring the fact that I didn't have any real like way to make money other than just showing up and pimping out my time to a customer service rep or as a customer service rep. So I woke up, I said, you know what? I'm going to join the army and they're going to pay for school. And that's what happened. And along the way I spent I spent 22 weeks away from everyone because of, you know, because of basic training and AIT. I joined the National Guard version 
of of the military or the National Guard division. And when I when I was there, I realized also that I had developed a problem with alcohol because I wasn't around drinking for that that long, and I got to really sit and think think alone. There wasn't a lot going on in my mind, just what was around me. And so I said, you know, this is crazy. So I think I got out. I went out and celebrated one time, got totally shit-faced, and I said, this is not how I want to go, and this is not how I want live to be. I mean, life to be. So uh, I got sober then. I joined school. I had, I, but when I enlisted, I was 3-0 and as a professional, and then I got out, and I just kept going and kept going. I was originally going to become an engineer, and I took my first physics class, and I said, I really want to study this, not engineering. And that's that's how it how it happened, <laughs> you know. And I, I was fighting and going to school and in the military, all at the same time. And, and looking back at it now, I have no idea how I got all the energy. I was going to say, I mean, that. That, that's a, an awful lot to pack into a day. Oh, then you know, my days. I remember. I mean, there was a period of time, and I'm really grateful because I have a, I have a great great girlfriend, and she really helped out a lot. But there was a period of time. I mean, I for for at least a year, maybe. I just, I mean, I, I mean, I know it happened, obviously, because I'm here. But it was all a blur because I, you know, it was wake up, go practice, go to school, um, come back, or get out of school, go practice some more, come back, work on the homework because physics is not some slouch subject. There was a lot of studying and homework I had to do. And then uh, some weekends I had to go do military things, so I didn't have that time either. And then I was exhausted all the way through. And then I'm still trying to be like a reasonable social person, you know. So life is life. Life was just just busy, man. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. That's one way to put it. That's definitely busy. So was there a was there a specific turning point where you realized? Obviously, you'd mentioned a, a period of isolation away from perhaps access to alcohol and then whatever the influences were that were encouraging you to party as well, that that had highlighted that you you maybe had a, a problem with substances. Was there a, an aha moment or was it a gradual oncoming and a gradual onset of realization? Well, in terms of a specific aha moment, I mean, there were, there were quite a few. I mean, and if you want to talk like real aha moments, I had I had a real aha moment like like two years before I stopped drinking. It was just me being in denial for a long time. And what really did it, what made me finally quit, it wasn't like I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm in rock bottom. I got to bounce up. It was having a goal. I said, OK, I am I'm now in the United States military. So now I'm, I'm subject to their judicial system and the civilian judicial I'm trying to finish my degree and go back to school so I can make sure I have a better way to live. My professional career is developing. And I had just, you know, really started dating my girlfriend who who I saw a lot of potential in. And unfortunately, I was right. I mean, she's still around today and we're happier than ever. And all of these things, I looked at how far I could go with them. And I knew that the thing that would keep me back was really the only thing that had kept me from making moves in my life before. And that was alcohol. So it was, it was very easy for me to, it was very easy for me to, for me to see that that had to go. And I was really fortunate too, because I had all of that going on. I didn't really feel the, the effects of not drinking per se, mm-hmm. because I you know, the biggest thing is I've found talking to people 
is developing a new life and a new identity independent of alcohol. I, I mean, obviously there are there is a point to which you're physically dependent on a substance, but it's been my experience and my observation that a, that a lot of us we we fall into the lifestyle and then we miss that. We don't know how to define ourselves. We don't know how to deal with life without booze. And for for a while, I mean, I I think that was a thing that I thought about quite a bit, but I also said, okay, I got other tasks I got to do. So I didn't even really have, there wasn't time to waste blowing off steam. You know, I was still in, in that whole, like, I don't want to know. I mean, not, not really in that whole like new relationship phase, but, but I was really committed to my girl. So I wasn't trying to go out and, and, you know, chase women or anything like that. And so yeah. all of these things kind of kept me away. I had enough things pulling me in another direction that I wasn't that, that there was just there was no way to fall back in for at least for the first two years, maybe three. Really, I'm coming up on year five this December, and uh, or, or rather, I guess in, in under a month it'll be five years sober. And I I know that I I didn't I was fortunate. I mean, I I did what I recommend everyone else do, but I did it on accident. I filled my time with so many things different than alcohol and it forced me to develop a different life so so i would say my transition off was relatively smooth but i know a lot of guys aren't like that because because they miss they miss a life they miss a purpose they miss a way to fit themselves and i was i was trying to build a new me and i was you know balls deep in, into a lot of <laughs> a lot of new stuff man like yeah I, I get that completely i think an awful lot of people's reasons for drinking are they're habitual and idiosyncratic rather than dependent at least in the beginning and then as you've as you've alluded to there the dependency the physiological requirement for your body to have the alcohol and to keep it going almost comes that's the second wave effect which yeah. which oddly is is even tougher to break but then when you layer on top the fact that that is your life, this is the way that you operate, this is the friendship circles that you've got and the community and what you're used to doing and the places you go and the people you see, when that is all hooked around a substance which you're also dependent on, I mean, it's a, it's no real surprise that people struggle to get themselves clean from alcohol, I don't think. Oh, for sure. And on top of that, man, we, we have a... We have a very alcohol. I, I wish I could just say alcohol friendly, right? Society, but we have. I, I'm not full blown conspiracy on this. <laughs> the tinfoil hats we, aren't out just yet. <laughs> but but we really have a culture that promotes excessive drinking for 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 teenagers and young adults, and that's a really formative time because that's where everyone is building friendships and really trying to develop um, the idea of who they are. And so when we intertwine such heavy drinking in that, in that phase, I mean, to make it part of part of the, the, your life from 18 to 24, easily just by default, you have, you have to try to avoid it mm. at that point. And most people just turn up for it. They want to socialize. They want to have a good time, but they don't realize how to control it really can get. I, t I couldn't, could not agree more. Um, I've got a couple of stories. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on them. So 
The first story is that I did my master's dissertation at Newcastle University in the UK, and my dissertation title was The Effectiveness of Anti-Alcohol Advertising on Students at Newcastle University. And the crux of the the synopsis of what I discovered was that there's pretty much nothing which uh-huh. effectively reduces <laughs> drinking for students. Um, that these terrible stories after a night out are worn like badges of honor. The, oh the, my goodness! The, I, I have a I have a whole section in my upcoming book where I talk about that, where you are you are treated as a, a goddamn hero, absolutely for, for being a fool. Well, if and you know, so- <laughs> let's say let's say that me me and you are catching up next week, and and I've gone on a night out, and you go, so Chris, how, how was your night out? And I'm like, Ed, man, honestly, it was unbelievable. Jonathan ended up in hospital; he's lost an eye, and you're like, oh man, that's so sick. And you're like, in no other scenario would this be somehow worn as a badge of honor but it's a rite of passage for young people to go through this excessive drinking phase and then you know you can look to films like the hangover where the this drinking to excess the memory loss the amnesia all that sort of stuff it's totally glorified and the problem is that because because it's so well established within our society it's impossible for people to imagine that things could be another way. So this leads me on to the second part of the story, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on. So recently I was doing some, uh, doing a casting for a TV show in the UK. As a part of that, they asked me for a lot of background information from what was your relationship like with your parents to where did you go to school? What did you like doing when you were growing up? What sort of girls do you like? And blah, blah, blah. And I told them about everything, you know, was as transparent as I was prepared to be. And mentioned, oh, I, I like to do stints of sobriety. I've been sober for about three months now. I did six months at the start of this year. I did six months at the start of next year. And I'm currently under doing 18 months. I like it as a tool for productivity, et cetera, et cetera. And she goes away, rings me back in a couple of weeks and says, the producers would really like to see you in London, but they've asked me to ask you a question before we bring you down. I'm, I'm really sorry. I don't want you to get offended by this, but they've asked me to ask you and they've asked me to be very specific about the way that they're that I bring it up as well. I'm like, okay. I mean, you know, is this as one of my ex-girlfriends got in touch or, you know, like what, what, what have they got on me here? Uh, so she says, look, I, I need to ask you this outright. So they've, they've brought up the sobriety thing and they've asked me to ask you about whether or not you've ever had a problem with substances or a dependence on alcohol. And I started laughing down the phone and she was like, what, why are you laughing? And I was like, well, Firstly, I can tell you I've I've never had a dependence on alcohol. I'm not a massive drinker, although I binge hard when I party, as a lot of us do. Um, but what's funny is that TV executives at one of the UK's biggest uh, television stations cannot imagine a world in which someone would elect to not drink without having a dependence on the substance. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's like the old saying, right? Alcohol is the only drug. Where if you don't do it, people assume you have a problem, <laughs> you know, and and it, nowhere else does that ring true. And and really, sometimes I think about that, like how bad, you know, was it? I mean, I think my behavior was was just was terrible. I do think that. But in but in terms of like, I mean, I was never like, oh man, I got a drink today. It just really turned into a habit that was difficult to break, and then I started to build a lifestyle around said habit. So for all intents and purposes, I mean, sure, maybe I didn't have to think about it, but I was putting myself in a position 
to not have to think about it. So I could just go drink whenever I want and drink as much as I want. I bring that up because I wondered sometimes, you know, did, did I have a problem or was it just easier to say that to move uh, into the next phase, right? To go, okay, let's let's treat this like it's a real big deal and attack it as such. And, you know, it'll get people to kind of look and go, you know, because because I find this out when I say I, when we, there, there are two things you can say, right? And people have a very different reaction, though. It says the exact same thing. You can say, I'm not drinking tonight or I'm sober. And people question the first one. They tend to give you a bit of a of a of a of a nod of agreement on the second one. In fact, I usually get congratulations, which is weird. Yeah. Um, but we we really have this this culture, man. Like people don't have an alternative because I, I really there's no vested interest in showing people an alternative. I mean, I, I crunch numbers for a chapter that I'm not going to include in my book because I don't want people. We live in a climate where you can't say a lot of things, and you'll see where I'm where I'm, where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want that to be the focus of the book, that particular passage, because I know somebody will rip it to shreds and, and go after go for the juggler on it. But I, but I crunched the numbers on on alcohol abuse and its correlation with sexual assault and alcohol abuse and the income that universities receive selling it at at football games wherever, right? And it's not, you know, on on the on the latter, it's it's not that great. Uh, I was really surprised by that, actually, mostly because they go out of their way. Uh, the law enforcement kind of gets involved, but on campus, it is very easy <laughs> to to get to get alcohol. And I know over there in the UK, you know, the drinking age is different, and this is not an issue. But in in the United States. Many college towns and college campuses, there's a liquor store or a place to buy liquor on every corner. And you got to run. I've seen so many places shut down throughout the years right here in, in, in Pittsburgh alone for for serving underage and eventually getting caught because there's just too much money involved. I mean, you, you don't want to leave that alone to the other fact. Right. I, I, it was rough analysis. And I'm a I'm a physics guy. So my math isn't isn't bad. It it just wasn't as rigorous as, as you know I'd have to make it to hold up in an official publication, but you know I I figured out that if you eliminated the role of alcohol if you eliminate alcohol from the from the equation right that you would you would effectively eliminate and when I say effectively eliminate reduce to to below ninety percent or below ten percent uh, the amount of sexual assaults on women in the ages of 18 to 24, the college age group. And no one wants to discuss that because the minute you say that you get the counter argument, you should just tell guys not to do this, you know, this, that, the other. And I'm like, look, I don't think any guy is walking around thinking, or rather I will say if we were to break it down statistically, like one in 500,000, maybe one in 1 million guys are walking around going, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get her drunk and rape her. Like, I don't, I don't think, guys are thinking that what i think happens is that alcohol is supposed to cloud your judgment we've got tons of studies that alcohol uh, ruins your ability to, to read and interpret cues that you would normally pick up when you're sober and it ruins and, and likewise it ruins your ability 
to to put out the proper cues that you would when you were sober and you get two people together in the sexual prom of their lives and they're 18 and 24 and you mix in a bunch of alcohol and that's just a I mean that's a powder keg and, and we see these things happen year after year after year it's to the point whenever i hear of an assault on campus my first thought is well how much were they drinking i wonder how were much they, i wonder how much alcohol they had in the system yeah yeah absolutely. And, and then and then it always comes out that it was at some kind of party or something wild and you can't it's crazy that you can't talk about that and that would make a difference like if these people were really concerned about the safety of their children the safety of their daughters they would be all over that issue but we, we were so trained to not talk about or rather we're so trained to place a victim and place a blame on a thing that we can we can um, assign like a gender in these wars. Well, you can you told- can personify a person a lot easier than, than you can personify alcohol. And I think right. what people are looking for in these situations is they're looking for the archetypal roles, the villain, the maiden you know, the redeemed, et cetera, et cetera. They, they want to be able to personify. I recently went to go and see Jordan Peterson live and he spoke about this personification of objects within culture. And, you know, why does Thomas the Tank Engine have a face? Like, he's a tank engine. He doesn't need a right. face. He doesn't need a face. <laughs> doesn't need a name. But he, he kind of does because we need to know what sort of a person Thomas is, despite him obviously not being a fucking person. Like he's a, he's, a, he's a tank engine, but the same with this. We need in news stories there needs to be this personification, and you're you're totally right with what you say. That I think the main problem is that we can't. It's the wood hiding amongst the trees with regards to this alcohol problem. Right. You know, it's funny that the the, the title of the chapter was the drunk elephant in the living room, and <laughs> and, and I, I decided that I don't want to put it in because I don't want people to miss the other things that I'm trying to talk about and offer to people, you know, a way to look at their behavior and, you know, get through the emotional, the emotional distress, I think, of sobriety, because that was very surprising. Yeah, that is, I mean, that's, it's harrowing that that's the case, but we've all been there. We've all been in a situation where we've had, too much to drink and our judgment has been skewed and we've made a mistake. Now, very few of those situations will result in a sexual assault, but you know, it, it could have occurred. You've maybe lost your temper at a kebab guy or you've walked out of McDonald's without paying or you've stepped out into the road when you weren't looking, but there wasn't any cars coming or maybe there was some cars. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like all of these situations are lapses in judgment and the reason that they occur and that you continue to drink to excess is because for every drink that you have, it makes not having a subsequent drink more difficult. Alcohol yep. alcohol <laughs> is an inhibition reduction echo chamber, as far as I'm concerned, like a, a, a Bayesian updating gone wrong, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, no, that, dude, that's, uh, that's brilliant. No, to put it I, into the I, phys- I, physicist's vernacular there for you. <laughs> no, no, I, I totally agree and until we can have that conversation and i don't i don't i'm not completely giving up on humanity (laughs) but i i do understand and i'm not i'm not blind to the fact that there is very clearly in a you know very real agenda and and it's hurting people it's not helping it's it's hurting now you know i'm not i tell people all the time i'm not anti-alcohol what i am is i am i'm anti 
it's a, it, ritual recklessness, man. Like it's just stupid, man. We we drink to excess yep. and and celebrate it. I, I think about all the times that I, you know, I, I'm just lucky to be here. I just wrote in my email, I sent out to my email list today that in another universe, the coin landed on another side, and I'm I'm doing multiple jail sentences, and my oh, yeah. name. You know, I just I'm lucky. That's all I am is lucky. Absolutely. And not, not everyone else is going to be so lucky. And that's and as long as we rely on what I mean, who who's here to teach people how to drink responsibly? Because we've created this culture where, you know, you, you got to sneak and get drinks and then if, and then you want to be crazy and bad with it. And then then the people who don't drink are treated like outcasts and most humans are not equipped mentally or emotionally to deal with that so they cave and then they they want to fit in and it just it's a it's a spiral of ridiculousness that isn't going anywhere which is one more reason that the university system needs to die but it's a hmm. it's a secondary one well, I, I think you know. I, I think it's it's interesting to talk about uh, talk about the fact that there are these unseen consequences so to speak and one of the problems i had so my background i'm a club promoter i run club nights you know i've had probably near to a million people come through the events that i've run in the last 12 years or so with my business partner so you could argue that i'm at the tip of the spear when it comes to delivering (laughs) delivering this rhetoric to students but never once in any of the marketing promotions that we put out have we said to drink to excess We're, we're very very careful and licensing are also very careful of keeping a watch on what it is that we communicate to these students. So where is this rhetoric of excessive drinking coming from? Oh, it's just, it's just um, here's what I'm not sure about. Um, I don't want to speak for the rest of the world, but I, I do understand that a lot of the, uh, for lack of a better phrase, the generacy norms are common in the UK and the United States right now. Hey. So as far as this excess goes, I think it is, I think it's a derivative of, of our consumerism, our consumers mindset. We're very much about more Mm -hmm. and not just more, but more on display. You know, a lot of these kids don't sit in their dorm rooms and kill a six pack alone, right? They go out and they do it what a bunch of other people is, is part of a, of an acceptance ritual. And a lot of that comes from us being, uh, I would argue not trained very well at connecting with other people as well. So it's really a perfect storm. I think one, we, we have this incredible display culture and we have tribalism. We want to fit in. We don't want to feel alone. Yeah. Alcohol started as as a way to do that, and then it just it just evolved. You know, one people keep trying to do out outdo one another to where now every frat has some kind of binge ritual, and then that spills out into the mainstream. We got money involved, so now there is there is you know you can't come right out and say go drink a lot. And then drink some more. You can't come right out and say that, but but that just has made the marketers even more clever. You know, yeah. It got to you know we, we look at the way I don't know how cigarettes are handled over there, but you can't have cigarette commercials here in the United States anymore. Same. And for a long time, <clears throat> for a long time, right, there was a big deal about Joe Camel, and and Joe Camel, the cigarette guy, made to appeal to children. I made to appeal to young adults. It's a camel with a leather jacket on and these sunglasses 
walking around smoking, you know? <laughs> so so while you're not telling people, go smoke, we are we are associating images of coolness. Now there's a whole media behind it because there's money behind it. I mean, they realize that if we get you to drink this in your movie, we'll pay you. And then the writers make it great because that's what they do to writers and directors. And so people go, oh, man, that looks like a great time. Let me emulate that. Yeah, right? I think I think you're totally right. It's a lot more subversive when you see it delivered through the culture in that kind of a manner. And that, that to me, that almost below the line delivery through popular culture rather than the uh, sort of top-down, above-the-line rhetoric from the advertisers, directors, where it appears to come from. But I can also see, as someone who's interested in creative pursuits, I can also see that if you if you cast The Hangover, but you get rid of the drinking, or if you have like a bad boy biker hero in some film, but he's having like a vegan smoothie before he goes to like shoot someone, it it kind of loses its edge a little bit. Like oh, there's a role does. there's a role that alcohol needs to play in popular culture. And unfortunately again, we're kind of stuck in this echo chamber where there's nothing else that can fit it. You know, it, it changes the character. If you take him from from saying, well, this particular character who has lost his family and is on a path of revenge is drinking heavily every night and then waking up in the morning to go and try and gun people down. If you swap, <laughs> if you swap that for that same guy's microdosing LSD or, or like, you know, smoking weed or taking fucking CBD tinctures or something like it, the dynamic changes too much and it destroys the story. So there's culpable deniability on the side and also I think genuine deniability on the side of the people that are writing these rhetorics in, but it's a vicious circle because you, unless you can step in at some point, that's never going to stop. Yeah. And, and so, so, you know, we, we already know what happened. You know, this country had probably ran one of the best natural experiments in history, destructive, but one of the best, we know what happens when you ban alcohol. We, we witnessed that. We, we had the 18th Amendment and then the 21st Amendment. It was that bad that it got put into an amendment, <laughs> you know, and, and it's the only reason why we know people like Al Capone are the only reason. So we're not going to ban it. And there's too much money involved and it's going to continue to subvert culture as a result. So the best thing you can do is, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the gym, top down, you know, from the generation and, and working with your kids and showing them a good way to live. I have. I have a unique perspective because, you know, I, I grew up around a mom that, that drank a lot and a dad, he was, he didn't drink that much, but I actually have no idea how much he drank. You know, I wasn't around him that much, but, but alcohol was very much a part of my life growing up. Um, but not so much in my girlfriend's life. And it's so interesting to see little things like she'll, she'll have a glass of wine. And when I say she'll have a glass of wine, I mean, she'll have a few sips from a glass and then it'll sit there until I clean it. And I'm like, and I look at it and go, how can you not finish that? That's weird. Yeah. And it, it's, it's because, you know, she grew up in a household where, where they, they promoted different values and there wasn't this kind of consumerist excessiveness and certainly there wasn't much alcohol. I mean, what it's going to come down to if we're going to do anything about this situation. And most and first, people got to see the situation, which I don't think they ever, they're ever going to do. 100%. In mass. But, it, but if they did see it, then the only solution, the one that will not result in a large 
severe negative externality and reaction like like the days of prohibition is that it's got to start in the, at home with the families man it's got to start with with how you how you raise your children and what you show them and how you develop their their abilities and discipline and confidence all those good things but but you know we're, we're, we're horrible we live we, that's not that's not going to happen it's probably i haven't been to a college party and <laughs> man, shit, man. Since I was maybe twenty six, I don't know, twenty six, twenty five. So I don't, I don't know how bad or how crazy the campus has gotten. All I, all I see are the extreme news stories when, when they hit, and you know that's like the airplane crash effect. You know, or, or availability heuristic. I think is the official name. Yep. So, so I don't, I don't know how, how bad it really is. But if I had to take an educated guess based on what I can see and the, and the ears I have kind of at that level, oh, uh, you know, it, it's it's certainly no better than when when I was in my twenties, easily worse. And now, now with social media, man, everybody wants to be a star. Everyone wants to tag a brand. Everyone wants to show off. And you know, you when, when we were, I don't know how, how old are you? I'm thirty. Okay, so so you're you're about I'm thirty three. So you're you're roughly in the same era. You know, when we were assholes. We were assholes, and then you could forget about it unless you were a really, really big one, like you went to jail or something. Yeah. You know, and then later on, you know, kind of, you probably were a little more in this than I was. Uh, you know, I sent my fair share of drunk texts, but that was later into my drinking, like, you know, 24, 25. Now, though, man, you're a fool, man. It is, it's out there. And, and not only, but it's not treated the way it should be treated. You know, yep. people don't, but then no one looks at themselves next morning and go, oh my God, I've got to stop. They go, holy shit. Like you said, that was awesome. I mean, How the, we- the, the, the <laughs> thing that everyone needs to remember is that you are only ever one email away from TMZ or World Star Hip Hop. Yep. Like, that's it. One email, one email and a couple of million people see what you got up to last night. Um, so you, you're totally right. The, the external accountability and the stakes have been raised an awful lot more because of the level of connectivity that, that the world's got that, you know, what you or me would have had to have done 12 years ago to have made the news, like it would have reached people. <laughs> it would have had to have been a Armageddon level drinking exp- uh, escapade. But now, you know, you can reach an equal number of people that probably the mainstream news re- reaches with a viral video. Like we've all right. got a friend, we've all got a friend that's that randomly that cat did something funny and got its head stuck in a piece of bread. Or do you know what I mean? Like uh, the fact that you can reach that volume of people is it, obviously it's a platform, but it on the flip side of that, it's also a real it's also a real concern. So on the topic of the platform of social media, we're going to move on to your thoughts on Twitter, which I'm super excited to get into. But I've got one thing that I wanted to bookend the conversation with with alcohol about. Um, actually, two things. Firstly, if someone was considering taking a stint of sobriety to see how they got on, have you got any first step tips that you would give them to aid them moving through that that sort of initial period, that transition phase? Man, you two things. One... You're going to have to just spend time with different people. I've gone back and forth about this in my mind over over the past five years. And ultimately, if, if you're serious and you want to try a different lifestyle, you, you're not going to get support from the people who are still in said lifestyle. It's just it's not going to happen. People aren't, aren't designed that way. Your existence and your action will force a type of uh, reflection that people aren't ready to make. 
I think the biggest mistake I made when getting sober was asking my friends what they thought. Of course, they're drinking with me. They're not going to admit that we're all. I mean, very rarely they're going to go, you know what? We, we all are fucked up. We need to. Like, <laughs> no, that not happened. No. Right. So if, if you want to get sober, man, if you want to try it out, you're going to have to just accept that your friend group for a moment ain't your friends. Go do something else. Make a new group. Have some fun. Explore yourself. And that leads me to the other thing. You got to immerse yourself in, 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 a, in a task that demands energy because it's very easy to say, I worked very hard today. I'm going to go out and have a drink. I actually did have that thought quite a bit. But when you're exhausted from working on stuff, plus, you know, you got promises and commitments. But really, when you're exhausted, even if you tell you yourself but when you tell yourself it's temporary it's very easy to just go okay it's over right like i mean i didn't give myself the temporary out it was just all right i'm done but if someone wanted to try and see how it adapt how they went with it uh they they need to be busy they they really need to be busy otherwise it's going to be very easy to say oh i I did really well today i'm going to celebrate with a drink yeah or i had a bad day and right i'm gonna i'm gonna use it as a as an anesthetic or as a as a pill, or as the the equivalent of of something to dampen that mood down, I suppose. Which again, the I, I like the idea of having having a newfound purpose and something to to put that energy into. That it's a reason to get yourself up in the morning, and it's also a reason to put yourself to bed at night without having had a drink. If you know that you got to get up and you got to perform the next day in whatever whatever value it is that you've chosen is worthwhile. If you know that you need to do that, then you don't want to drink the night before because you want to be fresh because you're excited about performing to you the best of your ability the next day. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the final thing I wanted to touch on was I had a discussion with um, Michael Kaju, who is the CEO of Brute Strength. Now, Michael took his first drink of alcohol when he was nine years old, had a very heavy substance abuse to class A drugs, and alcohol by the age of 14, was in and out of rehab, and then went on to become the fittest man in the world two years in a row at the CrossFit Games as part of the Affiliate Cup. Now he owns the probably the biggest CrossFit programming company on the planet, which is Brute Strength. Um, and I talked to him about his, his thoughts on sobriety, and it was very interesting to hear that what he said, or one of the things that he touched on, was that he feels like Beating an addiction or beating a dependency isn't simply no longer taking the substance. It's the ability to reintroduce that substance on your terms. Now, I've spoken to Dominic McGregor, who's the COO of Social Chain, which is UK's largest and probably the world's largest social media agency, also had some pretty big uh, substance problems that came on much later in life, uh, much more recently, and now he's in his about two years clean, I think, from all of those. And he wasn't he didn't fully agree he felt that um you can have control over the substance by still not letting it in but i'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on on that that the reintroduction of the substance on your terms is (laughs) nah man you know here's what i'll say no one no one decides to get sober because they had a great experience most of the time and they had a few (laughs) bad ones right that's just a regular night of drinking and learning your limits. Nah, man. My my thoughts are this. Once, you know, I always say, here's what I always say. I say, you know, as far as my privilege of alcohol is concerned, 
I I lost that privilege in this life. That you know, and I, and I want to keep it that way. I you have to leave it behind. You have you you make that decision because you know that bad things happen. You know, and you got to remember, it's not even so much a situation of excess. I always say, look, if you start doing dumb shit under the influence, then you know the alcohol is working. There's no. There's no minimum effective dosage or anything. We, we we like to tell ourselves that, but we got to remember, we're still at the end of the day ingesting something that's supposed to alter the way we think and alter our judgment. I don't think, if, if you realize that you cannot do that to the point where you have to commit yourself to a program or you have to make a vow of never touching it, there is no reintroduction to that. Like, you know, yeah. I, I just... I, I 100% flat out um, disagree because if you get to the point where you feel like you need to quit, then then you then then you don't have control. There, there's no control over it. What I will say to that though is, if you you know if you if you scale back, if you think you know like I was saying earlier. I'm not sure if I had an, you know, a pure addiction or not. What I knew is that it was severely affecting me, and no more. I don't want those effects. Now, you know, if, if I if I made it, and I was the man, and I, and I decided to go have a drink. Uh, you know, what does that that do? Does it is it good or bad? But at, at some point, it's just it depends on a level of commitment. How how committed are you <laughs> to and it? Also, I suppose as well how how much of a problem is it? Because you know, for me alcohol or sobriety, the removal and the abstinence of, of alcohol for me is more a tool for productivity. I've never, I've right. never had a dependency. Uh, very fortunately, I'm around a lot of friends that have been touched by that kind of a problem, but for me, that's never been the case. So when I'm looking at my sobriety in particular, I can see it a lot more through the eyes of someone that's elective rather than necessitative if that makes sense it's not a necessity yeah. for me to do it it's me choosing to do it in the same way as someone saying okay i'm gonna make sure i get eight hours sleep a night or okay i'm gonna make sure that i eat five bits of fruit and vegetables a day or whatever it might be uh, <laughs> so i think i think that maybe maybe on that side there's there's a number of different sort of unique approaches but i i think what's interesting is that a lot of people will be suffering a net negative from alcohol consumption, but may not be doing it that regularly, may not, that you know, you could go through your entire life netting a negative from alcohol, but never actually having anything go that wrong. Right. You just end you know, up damaging your health, you waste a bit of time, you kind of don't really develop any passions that are outside of drinking, your weekends get wasted, and before you know it, you're 60. And you're like... Yeah, you know, and, and for some people here, you know, and that's another thing, that's why I find it really interesting that that, that particular... Uh, guy said that because that, that's that's really interesting to me. Um, yeah, you know, my personality was such that, or rather, is such that I, I just, I mean, I just wanted more for my life, and and now at this point in, I think I just I couldn't imagine what I would get from it. I mean, I, I think I'm the coolest person most people are ever going to meet, and I know that alcohol makes me less cool. Like, I, like I'm not as sharp. I'm not as interesting. Yeah, I'm not as controlled. And so it comes down to the image that I've kind of learned to develop of myself, uh, independent of the substance. So, so I wouldn't even have, and I'm sure my argument is 
is filtered through that, but I wouldn't even have a desire at this point to to drink again. You know, like what what would I get out of it? Man, I couldn't that, that I couldn't I, agree more. So I I, <laughs> I, I announced I announced a, a little Facebook status. I kept my, my sobriety stints quite quiet for the for the first two but did a little bit of a song and dance about it because I know that it, it kind of does inspire other people or at least make them think about, about drinking. And I was interested to hear people's responses and someone asked me for um, the reasons why I wasn't drinking anymore and the number one reason, the very, very top reason that I had was I have nothing left to learn from alcohol. Right. Like there That's- is nothing, there is nothing <laughs> left that the substance has to teach me. And it's like if you read a book so much that you knew it verbatim, reading the book kind of defeats the object. It's like, I've seen, I know the pages, I know the fonts. I understand where the, where this bit's creased. I understand what it feels like when I get to the end. And when I start at the beginning, like, you know, it's it, move on to a new book with regards to that. Um, yeah. You know, this is a new phase. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, in that regard too, maybe that's what I needed to put the book down was, was that period because now it's, it's just, I look at that period of my life, like, man, I wasted so much time. I learned some lessons, but mostly wasted time. You know, let's, let's, now it's down. Let, let's get on. Let's get on with it and get on. You know, and and be productive. Do some cool stuff. Yeah, I think I think what's to to kind of finish on that. What's super interesting is that you've talked about the fact that being sober makes you a more interesting person, which is so counter to what most people would would perceive. Um, oh yeah, because I'm. Mean, <laughs> on your on your blog at the moment, haven't you got something about like how to be fun whilst being sober? Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. I mean, it's to the point. Like, I'm. I just. I have just such a, a good, strong, extroverted personality. Um, there, there's no other way around it. I'm just. I'm just a, a already outgoing and already interested in in life. So I'm not. I don't. I don't need it. You know. I don't need it anymore. And, and so I try to build a life independent of it yeah. uh, and and I have a great time with it well you know it's it's nice to see that someone who you know is a, a accomplished and is getting things done I think one of the main things that we need to do if we are going to kind of open up people's eyes to the topic of sobriety for um for you know elective sobriety almost we could call it as opposed to kind of necessitative sobriety one of the things that we're going to have to do is have people who are in you know who are aspirational role models you don't want to see some guy who's hooked up to a machine with jaundice and fucking liver failure and go, well, look at this guy. He went sober and it saved his life. And you're like, right, yeah, but first off, I don't want to be in the situation that that guy was in. Uh, sorry, is in. And secondly, I'm not in the situation that he was in. So it, it's right. just there's too much of a of a gap for people to leap there cognitively. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully this will have opened some people's eyes. I want to move on to Twitter and your your relationship with Twitter. Would you be able to explain to the, <laughs> explain to the um, listeners what your, what your thoughts are on Twitter, please? Oh man. I think, I think Twitter is like magic. I don't, I don't know. I, I have this, this thing I've been thinking about lately, which is that the, the world we live in today is so far advanced that you couldn't even, if you were a writer in like say 1900s, you couldn't even imagine with like the, your your science fiction wouldn't create this because you couldn't see this mm. at all, even in your imagination. It's just so crazy. And Twitter is one of those things, man. You know, I say a thing, I put a thought out, and people share the thought. <laughs> like 
And then those people share the vibe. And you can spread a message around the world and like I mean in and in, in under in under thirty minutes. I mean, it's faster than any uh method of propagation because of the way they set it up. It it it's just one giant growing self sustaining Metcalf law abiding network. And it is just cool. I love it. I've spent a lot of time and energy uh, figuring out how to maximize the use of this platform, and then I think I think it shows, and, and the follower count and the engagement, and and now the living I make off of it, I, I think it's it's just the best thing ever. And you know, if Twitter goes away, somebody will come up with with something because this idea of of sharing across barriers like you don't have to follow me to see what i say but if you like what i say you can follow me no other platform uh structure that way it just it just isn't i mean i write about this i got a new book coming out and, and a set of and a course along with it afterwards where, where i talk about this exact thing that makes twitter so powerful that you can you can share ideas no other platform lets you do that and in sharing ideas you can motivate, you can inspire, you can draw people in, you can antagonize, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, well, you can't do whatever you want, you know, because they, they they've banned got terms of service. Yeah, exactly. Right, but but my my thought about the terms of service. I mean, people complain about you know sensitivity and and you can't say this because of censorship, and and that's never been an issue for me because. That's not why I would want to use something that's powerful. You know what I mean? Like, th th that's really how I feel about it. I'm not. I'm not saying people should be restricted from saying whatever they want to. What I'm saying is that why would I spend my time on this platform just you know shit posting and trolling? The, it, it, it's so much more than that. If I want to do that, I take it over to Facebook and bother some people. You know, here we we have. I'm sitting here, and probably the reason you know about me and so many other people know about me is because I have thoughts, and I understand how to craft them, and, and I just put them out. I press a button, and then I, I can amass a group of people around me. I, I'm, I'm not interested in violating the terms of service because that's not that's not my stick. I'm not a shock doctor. You know, I'm, I'm not – I don't talk about – I don't even talk about politics, man. I hate politics, <laughs> personally. Yeah, It's just it's, – it's, it's just a very – it's a very powerful tool. It's like it's like the way I see the Twitter CEO, uh, you know, and these these bands and putting these words in. Uh, I'm just this, this is not my my emotion. Like, I don't think Jack is doing a good or bad job. I think Tom will tell. But what I do know is that this is a very powerful technology, probably more powerful than most people realize, because behind any any machine are people. And this is the ultimate tool for connecting and finding people. So what I what I think he's doing is, is trying to be a guardian of of the new magic before we abuse it and like lose it. Yeah. That, that's the analogy I would go with. Now whether he's making the best decisions on you know on, on guarding it is is a different debate. But I think that's how he sees his role. Maybe not consciously, but he certainly understands that he is the steward. Of of a thing that can I mean and will change change the world I mean it's changed individual lives which means as as a collective it, it's going to change large groups and change the world.
Absolutely. So you touched on that you'd come up with some effective strategies for Twitter. Would you be able to lay out some key elements of that framework for the listeners who might want to uh, think about growing their Twitter following or look at some principles on what's most effective? Uh, Right. Above all things, man, you have to give people a reason to want to see your words. Uh, but like, because at the end of the day, that that's all it means. Like right now, I'm looking at my screen. That that's 62.1 k underneath my followers. All that means is that I've given those people, that many people, a reason to follow and listen to me. I've provided value. I've given them something that helps them, something that they didn't know, something that helps them, makes them feel a certain way or think a certain way that they find favorable. At the end of the day, if you want to grow, you have to give value. And, and I can't stress that enough. Uh, many people, when they start out on this platform, they don't they don't realize that that at the, that if you, if you want, it's like it's like real life. If you want people to follow you, you give them reason. You know, why should you be my leader? I mean, well, that's why they I mean they, they call it followers, right? But if we want to look at that, right? You know, well, why should we let you lead us? What what, do you, what have you done? What have, what do you say? What have you shown to be? Uh, the, to separate you from the rest of these other jokers out here who are putting up pictures of women and, and cats and trolling and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. what, do, what, do, what do you bring to the table? Yeah. So that's the number one thing. Uh, number one, number two thing is you have to get people to see that you add value. And the, the only way to do that, I've grown my, my following from scratch. And I did that. I didn't ask anybody to follow me. I didn't... I didn't pay for play, nothing like that, right? This all is a real people, and and the engagement shows. I do about twenty five million impressions a month. Let me tell you, I started like every other account starts, and I grew because I identified people that that I already looked up to and liked, and then the people who were already following them, I followed a few of them, and they were saying something good, and then I would quote tweet whatever they you know things that they say and add value to it. When you do that. You that they see that you did it first, and then they can decide if it's worth retweeting or not. And then as you re, as they retweet it, assuming you you have added some great value, then other people are going to see it, and then it just grows and grows. I have an article how to grow your Twitter following, and I and I got a screenshot. I don't even remember the program I used or the website that showed the growth of my my following from beginning to now. Uh, plotted on a a time to follower graph, and you can see it's it's a nice exponential curve. The way you you would think it looks, it starts out growing slow, 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 and then it, then it gradually uh, gets gets a steeper and steeper slope. All right, and so now I'm gaining about two thousand followers a month. I was on a streak for for for, for eleven months where I gained at least two thousand followers, and. I haven't gained less than fifteen hundred for our two less than fifteen hundred followers in a month. I haven't gained less than that in probably over two years. I'd have to go back and see, and it will be quite some time. So, and 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 the, the basic strategy is the same: add value, add value, add value. Give give, give people a reason to follow you. Make them think about the thing. Make them feel a certain thing. Highlight. Highlight a, a part about, about life or your life. Take from your experiences and what you've learned and repackage it and put it out there. There's so many different places to get lessons that you should not run out of. You should not run out of ways to add value. 
really realistically the only limitation you're going to have is like how, who do you who, who's presenting your information to their network right which means at the beginning you got to follow more people not not more but you got to follow a decent amount of people you got to follow more people than you then follows you and then they put your stuff out and they go oh this guy says some things let's go follow him yeah and and then they keep tweeting out and then you just keep growing and growing and growing i mean and it's really it's really beautiful man if if you do it right uh you you'll just keep sprouting up i mean next year this time I'm on pace to have a little under 140,000 followers. That is not insignificant because it's a, it's a good platform, man. You you're, you enable yourself to reach an awful lot of people. I think I think what's cool there is what's what's accurate there is the fact that you focused on the fact that you need to add value. And I think what people need to or what people want to hear is well, this is the golden ratio of following to unfollowing or that all that you need to do is X, Y, and Z. But obviously the whole point is to come up with content which is engaging and which resonates with people. And that requires you to actually think quite hard and be creative and be original with stuff oh, yeah, and, and know, add your own flex. That's not, that's not an easy <laughs> thing to write down on a on a piece of paper. You know, there's all kinds of, when you look out like, look at influencers and ways to grow Twitter. I mean, people don't like that. They don't No one really writes about it in the mainstream because it's not easy. It is the hardest platform to grow on because you are judged. I mean, let this be, you know, a, a commentary on the minds of humanity. However you want to take it. You are judged by the caliber of your words. And, you know, first and foremost, now there's other things behind that that I think are, are, equally as important are like are very close uh particularly the image you put forth in your authenticity like you know i always say i'm the most undoxable man on the internet you can literally go look up my address if you wanted to with with the boxing commission and, and i regularly give it to people if they want to mail me stuff i'm not you, you can't do anything to me doxing wise that's not going to get you in prison like you know <laughs> you go get my social security number or my, my credit card yeah you're going to jail for that though but everything else I'm, I'm just not worried about that and that that is the authenticity i put forth behind a platform which i know works to my advantage you know people will feel like they can talk to me and then whenever i have a chance or if i'm in the city and someone says hey i see you're here 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 would you like to meet up i always take the uh because I'm, I'm very grateful because when you have when you can reach this many people it's impossible to be broke i mean you, you really have to try like i'm not saying you know you got a ball out of control i'm certainly not i mean i make a modest living but but do, do, do you know how difficult? How does a, how does a business survive? It sells things, and what does it sell things? The people, and so it needs to market and advertise. I have the I have an incredibly powerful organic platform. Plus, I only give out things that are viable. I built up such a so much trust, only discussing things that are viable and, and writing things that help people. That that if you know when I create a thing, it, it's not really an issue. Like I don't even. I mean I. It's, it's to the point, you know, guys have said like, dude, you know, you, you make a killing with the paid ads and guys are always trying to get me to to affiliate and promote a thing. And I, and I, I have to be very, very selective because what they don't understand is that the moment I affiliate something, I'm putting my authenticity and reputation on the line. If you have a garbage product, not only are you not going to make any money from that. I'm going to look bad for I'm like I'm trying to fleece people. 
You know, there's always going to be people who have a, have a problem with you making money. That is weird as that is, but I don't want to give those people fuel. I don't, and plus, I don't want to fleece anyone in the first place. I don't. I don't want to promote a, a shoddy product. I, I turn down way more things than I promote, and I only promote what? Three, well, yeah, I only promote like three things. Uh, four occasionally when, when when a buddy of mine drops something in it because his it would change my life. I use it; it changed my life. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, uh, but 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 yeah. Aside from all the the, the technical stuff, which we could get into, uh, that I am going to put together in, in my upcoming book and, and course that I'm working on about you know how to write and how to structure things and different ways to weight the words and take your experience and transmute it to a to a um, highly engaging tweet. Uh, at the end of it all, if you do nothing else, you can make a lot of mistakes in your formatting, your word balance, your word choice. But if you deliver value, you'll grow. You may not grow as fast as if you if you make the tweet perfectly balanced or avoid repetition of words, but you will grow. I think that's I think that's a good way to put it. That focusing on the small stuff or sweating the small stuff is a surefire way to actually not get yourself off the ground. Um, I like what you said about not compromising and not doing, um, not choosing to affiliate yourself with products that you don't fully believe in. That's the same for myself. We have a, a series that all of the listeners will know, which is Life Hacks. And as a part of that, that is we're not affiliated with anything that we ever feature. And we're just completely transparent about websites or apps or approaches or techniques or products that assist us in our life and it's stuff that we actually use and sometimes we'll use it for a bit and then get rid of it and do you know but it's it's genuinely it's a manifestation of a solution to a problem that we have found and i think farnham street which is one of my favorite blogs the oh uh, yeah i love that blog shane parish is a absolute animal any of the listeners who want something to he, read he actually had me on the uh he flew down from toronto for one day uh, recorded and then flew back. I was oh, on man, uh, he's a monster. So, are you is that out on the knowledge project yet? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been out for for a a little while, about a, maybe a little about a year, maybe a little Fantastic. less. Fantastic. Well, I'll uh, I'll make sure that I put the link to that in the show notes below as well. But there's a uh, there's a really cool um, medium article by Herbert Liu which says why Farnham Street optimizes for loyalty, not page views, and that playing the long game, which Shane talks about so much and focusing on adding as much value as he can it's it's such a undervalued way of getting to the top because everyone wants the same as you know you were talking before we before we came on air about how you'd just gone to the gym and you'd hit the heavy bag or whatever you know people don't want to have to go to the gym and hit the heavy bag they want the five minute abs workout at home right. and the and the pill that gives it to them and in exactly the same way as this is why i think one of the one of the major attractions of reality tv at the moment is that it gets people from no platform to huge platform without actually having to cultivate any right. added any added value in the interim, you don't have to craft a character or prove any sort of worth. All you have to do is exist. And as a byproduct of that, <laughs> people, people are interested in your existence. So, you know, operating and optimizing for loyalty and not page views is a surefire way to get yourself a, a tribe that will follow you. Um, I think 
what's cool now is we're starting to see things stratify out into different sorts of media. So, you know, if you're good on video, then you go to YouTube. And if you're good with words and short form bits of kind of maxims and aphorisms and, and that sort of stuff, then you go to Twitter. And if, you know, if you're good with imagery or you're, you know, a good looking guy or a good looking girl, or you have the uh, nice mise-en-scene or however it is, then you go to Instagram. <laughs> you understand what I mean? So these these mediums, yeah. these mediums are now, you don't have to be a jack of all trades. You know, most people have got one of each or at least two of the three big, big platforms. But if you're very, very successful, if you're a good, if you're good with words and you can articulate yourself well, then, you know, go on Twitter or, or start a podcast. If you find that you're particularly good, if you know, if you're ridiculously really, really, really good looking, then you can go on Instagram or you can, if you're a photographer, you go on Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. So it's nice that you've found yourself, you've crafted a, um, an arena for you where you're surrounded by people. I mean, you know, Shane Parrish, like if you follow Shane Parrish, uh, Nicholas Taleb, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, yeah. Shapiro, um, you know, uh, if you follow a group of guys like them and yourself, the volume of wisdom that you're getting hit with, it's in the fucking PSIs, isn't it? It's like a 16 bar pressure of wisdom that's just coming at you on a daily basis. And you don't need to look online. You know, if you had Twitter and medium, I reckon that you'd probably be able to grow yourself into an absolute monster of an intellect in no time at all. Oh, absolutely. Because they add value. Yeah, they're always adding value, so there, there's never, there, there's never a dull moment between you know you can get on. I, I, I mean, I really love Farnham Street as a result of uh, seeing Talib on on Twitter. I picked up his books, you know, and I'm I'm loving his books. So, so what? That's what it is. I mean, but 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 think about this. This is what I always point out too. Um, one of the things that really helps you grow is life experience and you know the the more you've experienced outside of twitter you know the more likely people are going to follow you it's, it's like you know you you can't get famous from social media that's that's not we, we don't want to play that game right what we want to do is we want to go and develop ourselves and and have a lot built up and a lot to say and then come and deliver valuable perspectives on it, or just in life in general. I mean, I, I know I'm the the beneficiary of the halo effect. You know, people go, "Oh, this guy, he boxed professionally and he got a physics degree and he wrote some books." Oh, he, we we got to follow him, and and it just it looks it, it looks better. I mean, it looks at the very least, uh, you know, <laughs> people aren't gonna go, "What are you doing here?" While who cares about you? It's like, well. I'm here because I earned it. Why are you here? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think what's cool there is saying that saying that you shouldn't aim to get famous through social media, that the fame should come as a byproduct, is exactly the same as saying your body should not be the purpose of your training routine. It should be a byproduct of it. You know, yeah. you should train hard, you should do what you like to do, and you should put in the time and the effort. And then when you look in the mirror, it shows. If you reverse it and, and you aim for the top of the mountain, then you get lost along the way. Um, there's this cool, a uh, really cool quote that, um, you, you talked there about why should people listen to you? Um, and everyone wants to be able to expedite their route to success, right? They want to be able to, where's the shortcut? What's the, the, you know, Ed Latimore's five 
quick tips for you know Twitter success. They don't want to hear that you need to tweet. I mean, am I right in thinking you've had like <laughs> you've had, you do like a thousand tweets a month, something like that? Like uh, more, yeah, more between, sometimes between one between one thousand and fifteen hundred is generally where where I fall. So I mean, that's that's fucking terrible. That's like thirty to forty a day. That's a <laughs> massive volume. People don't want to know that they have to put that work in. But you know, for people to to talk about why don't they, why should they listen to you? There's a a quote by Johann Wolfgang von Goff, which says, "All truly wise thoughts have already been thought a thousand times, but to make them truly ours." We must think them over again, honestly, until they take root in our personal experience. And what I think this refers to is the fact that there isn't a, there isn't a, um, a shortcut to getting life experience. Like without context or buy-in, even the most enlightening concepts don't resonate. That's why your life doesn't change right. when, you, when you see one inspirational quote on Instagram. It needs to be part of a bigger narrative. It needs to be part of a bigger picture. And you know, seeing one out of context quote, it's it's not enough. It's immersing yourself in good content, like you say, people who add value, guys like yourself and and Shane and Nick Taleb and you know, like those the volume of I, I can't get over what I look at on, when I look at my Twitter feed. I actually unfollowed every <laughs> I unfollowed everybody on my Twitter and I'm now following thirty people. Um oh, awesome. which was for me I w- it's just a much more curated news feed. You know, I, a lot of the time what my friends are putting on there, that it's retweets. Like my friends are my real friends. I have them on Facebook and that's great. But what they put on Facebook is usually stuff that's actually meaningful. I've bought a new house. I've got a new car. Me and the missus are getting married. What they posted on Twitter was just like, drop, like fucking, <laughs> it, was, it was just degrade, like dissolving my brain. Because I think for a lot of people, Twitter's kind of the it's the the last thought at the bottom of the rung for, for many people because it's a little bit more nuanced and the fact you've only got a limited number of characters means that you you kind of need to work a bit harder as well. So, yeah, man, I mean, I, I am on, I am sorry to my friends that I unfollowed, but I, I've got you on, I've got you on, I've got you on Facebook for a good reason, but you were posting shit. And, I'm, I, you know, I post, I also post shit, but you don't need to follow me, so... Um, I, I, I've absolutely loved today, Ed. When, when is, you've got a, a number of projects on at the moment. Tell us the timeline oh, of what's goodness. coming up at the moment. <laughs> um, the, the, the big main, uh, I guess two big main things are one is my book about the transition to sobriety. I call it sober letters to my drunk self. And I wrote that. I mean, as the, as the title suggests, I wrote it just a series of essays that I wish someone had wrote to me uh, five years ago, and I put it together. And now we're we're, we're really moving along, which is which is great. The last thing is I just got to get I guess two last things: I get the final file to upload to Amazon, and I got to go record the audio book because now I understand. I mean, more people just do the audio thing and I'd be foolish to not do it that way, especially with this kind of book. So there's that. And I want to release that on my sobriety date, which is December 23rd. The other thing I have set to come out is I have an ebook on writing tweets, particularly, you know, how, how it's called engagement is the new cocaine. I'm really, really excited about the cover. It's got a, got that strong marketing look to it. I don't know if you've seen the cover floating around. I haven't yet. No. On on the internet, but, but it's really cool. And I'm just going to be talking about how, how I 
think about writing because what, what's happened is when you write this many tweets, uh, you I'm not sitting there crafting a perfect tweet every time. I just I know I just think in a certain way, due largely to the influence of the platform. And from there, I reverse engineer and I thought about it and looked at some things and and there are definite patterns. It's to the point now where I like I can I'm surprised when a certain tweet does not do well or does really well. And but but it's happened fewer and fewer. Like I have a pretty good idea of like what is going to resonate and how it's going to resonate based on the topic and the way it's written, the way it looks is important. People don't realize that. So so I'm putting all that together. I think people are going to get get a get a lot out of it. Um, and just like it, it's a bit of a marketing lesson here on the side. So so I know what I'm going to initially price it at as part of a deal with a guy I'm working with. It's going to be 25 bucks, right? I'll probably pop it up to like 37 or 42 or whatever those weird numbers are. But but think about this for a minute. I have 62.1 thousand followers. If I get 2% of them <laughs> to buy that, then then I you know, I I've made more than and 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 the 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 advertising is built in. I have that many people. Obviously, I know what I'm doing, and that's just the kind of thing that happens when you when you build a respectable following and, you, and you've done it. And, and you know, I'm, people are going to see how I think about the platform aside from like whatever I make from it. What's more, more way more important to me is that I just like sitting there crafting words. I'm very lucky that I was born when I was born and this technology was created because it really gives me the ability to craft a lifestyle and, and pursue the things that I think are important, which are, you know, knowledge, self-development, health, and really giving something back to people. You know, what, what good is my life if I accumulate all of this knowledge and I do nothing to, to pass it on? Oh man, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a, a really lovely sentiment. The fact that all of our victories and all of our suffering is they're made greater, both greater and less painful by using them to allow people to avoid the pitfalls and to expedite the successes that we've already encountered. Oh, absolutely. You know, <laughs> it's really just it's just a cool thing, man. We we got a great we have a great world. There, there's nothing to be nothing to be sad about, man. Got to be happy. I agree. Well, Ed, <laughs> thank you very much. Would you be able to tell the listeners where they can find you online? I'll make sure it's in the show notes below, but let's get everything plugged now so I don't forget. Oh yeah, you know my website is where I write in my long form essays. That's just edlatimore.com. And my Twitter is the same, where, I, where we were just talking about. You know, I, I put a lot of good stuff out there, I think. And that's Ed Lattimore. My Twitter is at Ed Lattimore. Fantastic. Well, Ed, it's been absolutely brilliant. Good luck with your final month. You've got just about four weeks to make sure that everything's finished and ready for Amazon. So I, uh, I wish you the best of luck in getting all of that completed. And then once the Twitter course is out, make sure that you give me a message and I'll, uh, I'll make sure I fire it out to all of the listeners as well. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time, man. Catch you later on. <laughs>